Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Rick Weiler about navigating difficult conversations. Rick's one of Canada's foremost commercial mediators. A former corporate commercial lawyer, Rick's been a mediator for over 30 years and has mediated close to 5,000 cases involving a wide range of subjects. Rick also teaches, writes, blogs, tweets, and speaks frequently on issues related to mediation and conflict resolution to a variety of audiences, both domestically and internationally. Welcome to the Excel Legal Podcast, Rick. It's a real pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. With such vast experience in the area of conflict resolution, I thought a good place to start, Rick, would be your approach to mediation. So how would you describe your mediation philosophy and style? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, for me, uh, mediation is a facilitated conversation. Um, two people, uh, in a simple case, two people are finding it difficult or impossible to have an important conversation, and they decide to reach out to a mutually acceptable third party for help. And when you think of it that way, there's little doubt that mediation has been around since humans have walked on the earth. Um, mm -hmm. But think about how can that third person help? What do they do? And I think for me in my mediation practice, it, it falls primarily into three categories. Um, mediator helps with communication, um, you know, making it possible for people to actually talk with each other uh, and certainly more effectively. So things like active listening, uh, paraphrasing, summarizing, reframing, these are all things, Shelley, that the mediator does. And, and they do it to, to help them better understand uh, what the situation is all about. But they're also modeling communication behaviors in the hopes that people will uh, see them, uh, reflect on them, and emulate them uh, in their own conversation during the mediation. So communication would be the, the first big element, uh, the way to help. The second is process, of course. Um, as you know, mediation is used in a wide variety of contexts. Uh, most of my mediation work takes place in the context of the litigated case. A lawsuit is underway. Uh, there's plaintiffs and uh, defendants. Uh, and the mediation process design that works best in that uh, setting is one thing, but if it's a neighborhood mediation or a family mediation or mm. an organizational mediation, different uh, process designs uh, make better sense. How long do the parties spend face-to-face? -face? How long do they spend in private caucus sessions, those kinds of process issues. So that's another way that the mediator helps. And then uh, finally, I think uh, our elements of substantive knowledge. Uh, this one gets a little bit controversial for some mm -hmm. mediators, but uh, the idea that uh, the mediator uh, as an impartial uh, participant in the conversation can bring substantive knowledge. So in my case, uh, knowledge of the law, uh, knowledge of, uh, you know, business organizations, for example, I practice corporate commercial law, 
um, bringing that knowledge uh, that uh, might help people get unstuck. Uh, so those are the three main areas where mediators help, and it really depends. It really depends on uh, what kind of help they want. Uh, you know, we're really there to uh, follow the mandate of the participants. Um, maybe I could sum it up, you know, just share with you how I start my mediations. Uh, yeah, I'd love I, that. Yeah, you know, I, I say to parties, you know, look at, uh, I've got three tasks here today. Uh, the first one is just to keep your conversation or negotiation moving forward in a positive, productive and respectful way. Uh, the second uh, is to try and make sure that each side understands uh, without necessarily agreeing, of course, but understands the perspective of the other side. And the third, and I think most important uh, task that I have is to bring the parties to the point during the mediation when they're in a position to make a good decision about the issues in dispute, all things considered. And that that good decision piece is really the essence of uh, uh, what I think my work is all about. I mean, I, I mediate a case, and if it doesn't settle at the end of the day, but we've done everything we, can, we possibly can, we run an effective process, and the parties uh, for them themselves are making a good decision not to settle, uh, to me, that is a successful mediation. I know it sounds a bit perverse, but it but it is. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, our, Shelley, as you know, uh, your own legal career, our, our legal system an adversarial legal system, it's all focused on the past things that happened in the past. And, um, you know, decisions about those things are made by judges and juries based on evidence and law. Um, mediation doesn't ignore that, of course, but the emphasis in mediation is on the future. Um, you know, how do we want things to be going forward? And of course, the parties themselves get to decide, not uh, some other third party. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, in a nutshell, that sort of covers off uh, my approach to the mediation process. It, it's, it's evolved a little bit, but frankly, not much over the 30 years uh, that I've been doing this. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we, we could talk about, you know, different aspects of mediation and, uh, uh, but I'll, I'll maybe just pause there for a moment and uh, see if any of what I've said makes sense. Everything you said made sense, Rick. <laughs> um, yeah, and super interesting. And I find it very interesting that um, you say that your style approach um, hasn't really changed that much over the years. And I guess because at the core, we're talking about communication and having that good conversation. I'm wondering if you've been able to identify some sort of key features and or ingredients of a good conversation? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, uh, just thinking about that, uh, for me anyway, uh, really good conversations are not that common. Uh, they tend to be uh, more rare than we might think. Uh, uh, a good conversation to me, it, I, I sort of think of it as a two-way street, you know, uh, a giving and taking, uh, a sharing, a mutual sharing. Um, uh, good conversation, like I think it's a safe, sp a safe space, uh, uh, you know, a, a place of mutual trust and mutual authenticity. Hmm. Um, good conversations, when you have them, uh, really helps you to relate to the other person at a much deeper, uh, more authentic level. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, good conversation is an opportunity to learn, you know, I mean, uh, that uh, you, you go into the conversation expecting uh, that you are going to learn something. This is going to be important to you. It's going to be valuable to you. Um, you know, people are paying attention to one another, I mean, just paying attention. Uh, we've yeah. all had great conversations. Um, and, uh, when we have them, we feel, you know, really connected, totally understood. And, uh, so they're, they're a really good thing, but as I say, they're not all that common. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And because they're so rare and it is, it seems like it's more of a feeling when it happens, like, you know, when you've had a good conversation or when you're in a good conversation, but to articulate what the ingredients are, or how you could, um, you know, ensure that you have good conversations more often than not so good conversations. Uh, it's tough. It's, it's really tough. And I'm, I'm thinking about lawyers again, where we often have to raise issues that either we or uh, someone we're speaking with are uncomfortable about or would find difficult talking about and those people could be for lawyers clients colleagues opposing counsel um what's the best way to step into those sort of more difficult conversations yeah uh, you know for me uh, in thinking about that and a person that spends a good chunk of my week in difficult conversations <laughs> uh, i i start off with the concept of a habit or habits um, you know i think it was aristotle that said uh, we are what we repeatedly do excellence <laughs> then is not an act but a habit and, you know, uh, we can remember oh, decades ago now, but Stephen Covey, the seven habits, uh, highly effective people. And uh, I think to be effective uh, and have productive, difficult conversations, I think it's necessary to develop certain habits. And for me as a mediator, uh, you know, I, I think about some of the habits that I've developed uh, in the work that I do. And I think they have more general application to the kinds of conversations you've just mentioned, Shelley. Um, so, I mean, if you'd like, I could share those with yeah. you. Now's the time. Uh, Absolutely. I'd love to hear. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, so these are the habits that I try to be consciously aware of and work on. And what I found is that uh, by so doing that when you get yourself into uh, a difficult uh, (laughs) stretch uh, that, you know, you almost just default back to them. So uh, the first one, no particular order, just the way that I think of them, but the first one is a habit of yes. And so what do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. Uh, um, We live, I think in an either or world. Uh, you know, uh, if you read the, read the media or watch TV and so forth, the news, uh, the way that we talk about things, uh, it's like, uh, you know, we're all thinking about things in Manichaean terms, you know, you remember Manny, the third century <laughs> Persian prophet who taught everything was a b- battle between good and evil, light and darkness, right and wrong. And, and that's come right down to us today. Uh, uh, Plato was another ancient philosopher. He was really heavy into that uh, one right answer stuff. Um, but uh, there's a different way of thinking about things. And I refer to it as uh, yes and, different than the either or. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so letting go of uh, the either or um, and opening your mind to holding really sort of irreconcilable ideas in your mind at the same time, this idea of paradox, uh, I think that's uh, it's a concrete way of uh, keeping an open mind. And it's certainly what I try to do when I do my work. Um, second one is, you know, probably obvious, but it's not so common, is respect and, and understanding that, that each person needs their dignity. And if you're going to be interacting, communicating, having conversations with people, um, then you need to treat the other person with respect. You need to expect that that respect will come to you so that each person can maintain their dignity in the conversation. Um, a big one for me, another one is genuine curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so often we have conversations uh, and, but we go into them pretty sure we know what the right answer is, uh, or pretty sure, you know, our biases take control or uh, uh, something uh, just snuffs out that curiosity, but trying to maintain uh, a spirit of genuine curiosity, wondering uh, what's really going on. Uh, uh, what are the, the, the motivations? What are the interests? And mm-hmm. that word, uh, interest, leads to the, the next one, the fourth one, a focus on interests. Um, I'm sure you and most lawyers now, I've certainly taught it at the law school, uh, this idea of focusing on interest or interest-based uh, negotiation uh, interest. It simply means uh, what people want, what they need, what they're concerned about. Uh, and uh, uh, again, uh, focusing on those interests as a way to move forward in difficult conversations. And how it, do you get yeah. to those, how do you get to those interests? Because I, I imagine that they're not always obvious. Yeah, well, sometimes they are, right? I mean, the the thing to think about with uh, interests is that there are different types of interests, Shelley. So there's uh, substantive interests, uh, you know, having to do with the substance of whatever is being discussed. In my context, of course, it's usually money. Uh, You know, how much is the plaintiff going to demand? How much is the defendant going to offer? And obviously plaintiffs want as, want as much as they can get. Defendants want to pay as little as possible. That's the substantive interest and can be assumed uh, in, in the kind of conversations I'm involved in uh, most frequently. But beneath that, there are the process issues. Um, you know, take uh, the lawsuit the, that I'm mediating. Uh, both sides want the process to be over sooner rather than later. Both sides want to uh, spend as little money as possible in advancing the process. Uh, Both sides would prefer uh, if we could get this resolved in a day as opposed to two or three years. Uh, So there's those procedural interests. And and then thirdly, uh, and underlying all of that, are the psychological interests uh, that people have. And this, to some extent, comes back to respect and dignity. But uh, a psychological interest, too, is a a desire to be treated fairly and feel that you've been treated fairly. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, anybody that I'm coming into contact with in a dispute situation, they've got I know they've got these interests. And how do you get at them? Ask questions. 
Mm-hmm. The question is just simply the most powerful uh, tool that I've got at my disposal. Uh, the open question, you know, tell me more about that. What's important about this? Uh, uh, open questions, obviously questions that you don't just want a yes or no answer. You want people to, to open up and start talking about those interests. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, so focusing on interests is, uh, again, one of those habits. Uh, patience is another. Uh, the Having the patience uh, take things one step at a time. We're all uh, pressed for time. We're all very busy. Uh, but, uh, you know, understanding the value of patience, the importance of patience in a one step at a time approach, um, mm-hmm. persistence, uh, you know, if you're in a difficult conversation, uh, uh, and it feels like, you know, sort of the wheels are falling off or, uh, you're not getting anywhere. Um, patience sort of teams up with persistence, a willingness to push forward uh, uh, and uh, uh, see what can be done. This comes up for me uh, frequently in my mediations where, you know, you, you spend a day uh, uh, in mediation and towards the end of the day, you're getting to the end and there's still a big gap between the parties. And, uh, you know, you, you see that it's not going to be done that day. You're, you're not going to have the happy ending that everyone was hoping for come four or five o'clock in the afternoon. Persistence is what about the next morning after people have slept on it? Uh, What about the mediator picking up the phone or writing an email and just pushing a little bit further? Can we do this? Uh, Is there something we haven't thought of? So I think that same principle applies in difficult conversations generally, not to just let them fail, if you will, uh, or end on a negative note, but persistence. And then the, the final one I'd mention as a habit, Shelley, is uh, high expectations. Mm. And uh, again, I mean, it's just the old maxim, right? People and events rise or fall to meet your expectations. Yeah. And if you're going into a situation, a, a difficult conversation, and you've got uh, you know, pretty negative feelings about it, about the subject matter, about the person on the other side of the table, about uh, what you're expecting to come out of it. Uh, quite often, I, I'm afraid that's what you're going to get. But if you go into these conversations with high expectations, uh, I think more often than not, that's what you'll get. So yeah. that's just a quick run through of what I, I say habits, uh, sort of in terms of a, a high level, if you will, of approach before you sort of get down into the reads of the, the, you know, the tactics and skills and so forth. But those, those habits, I think, are vitally important. Super, super helpful, Rick. Yeah, thank you for that. A lot of things, um, you know, when you mention them seem obvious. But again, it's going back to those things that we don't often articulate or think about as having such an incredible and powerful effect on our communication. Uh, One thing that uh, you mentioned at the outset, and I didn't uh, identify as a habit was active listening. And yeah, and I'm, I'm, just like to explore that a little bit more because there's been so much written about it. And I'm just wondering what your view is on, you know, as you mentioned before, sort of strategies, tactics, things, 
I've heard things like, oh, you know, sh show your listening by nodding attentively and, and, you know, use your body language and things like that. And yet I've heard others say that that's really artificial and it's not the most effective way to uh, give the person you're speaking with the sense that you're truly listening. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I've read the same things. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly uh, in the early years of my practice and even before that, the training and so forth and training I've myself delivered, you know, you focus on all of those things you've just mentioned, the, the micro skills and so forth. But um, I mean, really what it comes down to in the conversation, it seems to me is, are you paying attention or aren't you? Hmm. You know, it, it's like, and if you're not, if and you're trying to cover that with a bunch of skills you learned, I think it becomes apparent. I think the other person uh, can pick that up. Uh, so, I, I mean, authentic engagement is maybe a better way of saying it. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the act of listening, yeah, we're going to summarize and we're going to paraphrase. And uh, so I hear you saying that. I, I think back, <laughs> I think back in my, <laughs> my early days of mediation and, uh, you know, uh, one of my uh, children who were then in their teens, uh, you know, we'd be at the dinner table and they'd be complaining or talking about something. And I'd start in with, so I hear you saying that. And <laughs> uh, one time my daughter turned to me and said, don't give me any of that mediation BS because <laughs> she knew I was just, I was trying tactics. Right. And, and I right, right. picked that up. And so, um, yeah, I mean, are you paying attention or not? And if you're paying attention, you know, you show it, you're leaning, like, you know, you're face to face with the person, you're, you know, sort of an open posture, you're looking them in the eyes, if, you know, if that's appropriate. Uh, and uh, you're engaging with them. And when you say things, you're saying them uh, uh, authentically, you know, there's an authenticity to the communication that lets the other person know that you are engaged and you are paying attention. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I find, you know, and this comes up uh, for me in the mediation context, Shelley, typically in a, in a caucus, the private separate meetings we have. And as you'd imagine, in some of the cases uh, that I mediate cases involving serious car accidents or medical malpractice or historical sexual abuse, uh, they can be pretty emotional. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I see a lot of that emotion. You need to be comfortable with that emotion, but you, you also need to be authentic with the person about that. Like, uh, the last thing you're going to say is I know how you feel, you know, cause <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, so, but, but I, I think you can be, uh, and you have to be authentic and it really is just human to human, uh, communication. Uh, so mm -hmm. th that's how I answer that question about uh, the act of listening. Yeah, it's certainly still there in the mediation textbooks. Uh, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I think you need to think deeper about what we're really talking about. Yeah, yeah. It also raises an interesting point. The last thing you said about saying, well, I, I know how you feel. I've also heard the term conversational narcissism, that we uh, sort of run the risk of taking over the conversation when we try to I put empathy in air quotes here, try to empath empathize with someone by saying something like that, you know, I know how you feel. Um, you know, 
what can we do to avoid doing that? Because I think that that's kind of a natural uh, reaction. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, and it's just as you're asking the question, uh, you know, it's something that, again, does come up for me. Um, if, if I've been through something in my life where I might know how they felt or, you know, sort of a common experience, uh, I might uh, say something about that if there's been, for example, a death in the family or uh, a serious illness or something like that. Uh, uh, I, I might start by acknowledging and uh, uh, validating and, and normalizing, you know, the, the reaction that they're giving me. Uh, but then sometimes that kind of reference, and maybe, you know, it's interesting, uh, conversational narcissism, because it is a great risk in any conversation to try and bring it back and make it all about you, uh, mm -hmm. forgetting that it is this mutual give and take that makes for important conversations and, and can make, uh, difficult conversations, uh, successful. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, you know, one one oughtn't to pontificate, uh, <laughs> sort of pretend they've got all the answers and so forth. Uh, perhaps like I'm doing here, but <laughs> but you no, you did no, ask. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm conscious of it because you know, uh, obviously, it's a, in this setting for me to sort of be. Uh, semi-pontificating, uh, you know, it's what you expect in this kind of an interview, let's face it. Absolutely. But, but, but uh, in, in difficult conversations or conflict-laden conversations, no, it's not something that uh, one should be doing at all. In addition to thinking about those, you know, habits in the moment, uh, is there anything that we can do to prepare for those tough conversations? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think preparation, uh, like with so much else in life, uh, is, is a real key dimension to having good, difficult conversations. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to start off, we, we've gone all this way into our talk, and we haven't really, what, really, what do we mean by difficult conversations? Uh, good point, good point. Uh, you know, uh, and, and I, I suggest that it's our own perception that the conversation will be difficult. That comes from within us. And so mm. why do we have that perception? Uh, you know, uh, well, we're concerned the other person might react badly, emotionally, uh, get upset or start crying or become angry. Um, uh, we're also concerned that we might be rejected by the other person. You know, you sort of, we open this up and all of a sudden they see us not as a, an ally or a friend, but as an adversary and an enemy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also we, we have a, a very valid concern that if we, we're going to have this conversation and if we do it badly, it'll make things worse, not better. Because obviously we want to have difficult conversations with the hope, at least our hope, that we're going to make things better, that we're going to be moving forward in a, in a positive way. So, you know, where do these difficult conversations come up? I mean, obviously for me, it's the mediation context, but it's, it's a specific, there's specific times in that process. Uh, for example, if you, you've got the task of telling a lawyer that in your view, for such and so reason, they have a weak case, 
or mm-hmm. they've made an apparent error in their analysis of the case. That's that's the toughest for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But in other settings, if you're if you're a consumer, um, uh, and this would include, uh, uh, well, uh, you know, wh- whatever it is. Uh, but it, it, you as a consumer, and I suspect we've all been there, uh, a conversation where you're telling somebody providing a service that you're not happy with the service or the good that's been provided. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and of course, the setting, which in my career, I haven't had a lot of experience with, except in the early days when I practiced law. But, you know, if you're in a supervisor subordinate position, um, you know, telling somebody they're not going to get the promotion they wanted, uh, they're not going to be made partner, uh, um, uh, or they're not performing adequately. Um, mm-hmm. um, telling somebody they got to do something they don't want, they don't want to do. You know, these are all examples of the kind of things we mean when we have difficult conversations. And so, how do you prepare for them? I think the first thing you have to do is reflect yourself, spend time with yourself on. Uh, the situation, um, you know, what assumptions, uh, what judgments, what resentments even are you bringing to the table that make you think that this is going to be a difficult conversation and try and get, try and get as clear as you can about that. Um, mm-hmm. And then you go on to ask questions like, Hey, do we need, do we really need to have this conversation at all? Uh, what if we don't, right? I mean, what's the alternative if we don't, um, in an organizational setting, do you need to have the conversation or is it something you can, you know, put off to somebody else uh, to have the conversation mm-hmm. and then timing. Do we have to have the conversation now? And, and again, trying to get as clear as possible on all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that reflection piece, and then moving on from that, if you're going to have the conversation, um, you know, I think you want to, you want to collect the facts, whatever this conversation is about, you, you want to be clear, at least on your, in your perception of what the relevant facts are. So, you know, for example, uh, again, relating it to my mediation practice, as you know, the lawyers will exchange a brief beforehand and in the brief, they'll set out a narrative. This is what happened. And uh, then they'll go on to apply the law to what happened and then try to assess the damages. So it's all sort of set out there. Um, so getting your, your factual basis uh, clear in your own mind, I think, uh, is an important first step. Sometimes in preparing for difficult conversations, if you're in a setting where you can do it, um, you reach out. Uh, to others, uh, others that you know have been down that road and may have some wisdom that can help you uh, in your organizational setting. I mean, as a mediator, I've done that uh, where, uh, you know, I, I remember years ago when I first uh, started having uh, cases come in having to do with historical sexual abuse. Uh, I hadn't had any of those cases um, and obviously they're, they're, you know, unique circumstances. You want to do it properly. You don't want to do any harm in the, in what it's all about. And I reached out to, uh, to other mediators who I knew had had experience in that uh, area. And, uh, it was very, very helpful. And, uh, I was very grateful that they were, were willing to share like that. Hmm. Um, 
Very good. Yeah, super. Great idea. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, again, something we don't often often think about. We feel like we sort of we're on our own. And I think that's one of the personality quirks of most lawyers. <laughs> we feel we have to do it all ourselves. Right. Um. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that's right. And, uh, you know, the, the preparation for a difficult conversation, I could certainly go on and on. But one of the things I, I think many people don't think about is uh, the choices that they can make about how they will behave or their behavioral response uh, in a conflict situation. And, mm -hmm. you know, we all think of fight or flight, right? <laughs> it's uh, yeah. sort of the two basic approaches. But uh you know, I mean, I, I think it's understood now that uh, there are other choices. Uh, um, you know, uh, th there's actually, a, it's like an IQ test, but it's called the Thomas Kilman uh, uh, instrument. And it, it helps you understand what your default or natural response to conflict is. Uh, and I think it's an important thing for people to understand. Uh, you know, are you a competitive person, always asserting your own interests first? Uh, are you a compromising person? Uh, uh, you know, are you accommodating? In other words, you know, don't worry about me. I'll be fine, whatever you want. Are, mm -hmm. are, are you avoiding? You know, do you just keep kicking the can down the road in the hopes that conflict will go away? Uh, or are you a collaborating person that works hard not only to achieve your own interests, but the interests of the other? And I think that this idea of understanding the choices you've got, and each one of the ones I've just mentioned, could be entirely appropriate given a particular situation. But uh, the empowering aspect is understanding you've got choices about that mm -hmm. uh, and, and understanding what your own instinctive um, uh, response to conflict is. And once you do know what that is, what do you do with that information in, in a difficult conversation? Right. So I, I think uh, the, I suggest that in a difficult conversation, which I'm going to assume is an important conversation, I'm, I'm going to suggest that the default uh, response or approach should be collaboration. Uh, okay. not one where you're simply exercising your will in a very competitive way, uh, but one that understands that uh, the person that you're having the difficult conversation with uh, has uh, their own uh, things they're trying to achieve, their own interests. And to do what you can to foster a spirit of collaboration where you're going to be genuinely curious about what those interests are and you're going to uh, do what you can to advance an outcome that uh, acceptably goes acceptably far in addressing the other person's uh, needs and concerns as well as yours. So mm -hmm. that's called a, a collaborative approach and I think that frankly should be uh, the default setting uh, for these difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's a variety of tools out there that people can use. Uh, one book that, that I refer to frequently by uh, uh, my former colleague, uh, Gary Furlong, he's got a book out called The Conflict Resolution Toolbox, mm -hmm. uh, Diagnostic and Strategic uh, 
and and he goes through a number of very simple things uh tools like the circle of conflict or the triangle of interests and so forth and they're they're almost deceptively simple but again uh when it's an important conversation it's it's and you're concerned it's going to be a difficult conversation all of this can go into preparation and so you looking at the kinds of tools the analytical tools and so forth that uh, Gary offers up in that book uh, uh, can be a, a helpful step. And I imagine that a lot of those tools could be used to help get sort of a conversation back on track. Um, sometimes, you know, these conversations spiral out of control as much as we, uh, we prepare and um, yep. yeah, hope yep. that they won't. What I've found works, and I've certainly been there, uh, but what I found works comes back to uh, things we've touched on already, uh, which is authenticity and questioning. Um, and, mm. uh, you know, like if it's just not working, if, if you're stuck, um, you know, the, the first thing, of course, is if you find yourself in that situation, um, you know, uh, I think of William Urey, uh, one of the co-authors of the famous book, Getting to Yes. He used to talk about going to the balcony, basically mm -hmm. a way of saying taking a break. Uh, you know, if things are stuck and people are just button heads, uh, slow down, take a break, go to the balcony, uh, a pause, a deep breath. The whole concept here is responding to the situation that you're in, not reacting. You know, the reaction, yeah. reacting tends to be a negative thing, uh, you know, an escalation of hostility, uh, et cetera. And it takes you in a downward spiral. Whereas if you can go to the balcony, uh, take that pause, uh, you know, count to 10 or a or hundred as the situation <laughs> requires, uh, you, you are in a better position to respond, to respond thoughtfully, to regain perspective, to clarify the situation um, uh, to remember what's important about what you're trying to do here and why it's important. So, um, then with that pause, having gone to the balcony, uh, again, uh, authentic communication, like, Hey, this, it's just not working. Uh, uh, what can we do? Uh, yeah, you focusing on process issues as opposed to, you know, the substantive concerns of the discussion itself, uh, gosh, this isn't working. Uh, we, we seem to have got ourselves stuck. What what could we do now to uh, move things forward that in a way that would be more productive uh, for you and for me? Um, mm. uh, so seeking out, asking, uh, uh, keeping in mind, as always with a conversation, it is a two-way street. And uh, so, yeah. And then once you've heard, uh, again, you're active listening, you are going to summarize, you are going to uh, restate and make sure that you've got it right, that you've understood. Um, and you're going to try and reframe, you know, I mean, uh, I find reframing a very, very powerful tool. This idea of, uh, yeah, well, the simple and common example, the glass isn't half empty, it's half full, but mm -hmm. I mean, it, it comes up all the time in my work, you know, especially towards the end of a mediation where we are getting stuck in the gap uh, remains discouragingly large. 
And, you know, you just as a mediator, you're encouraging people, you're a bit of a cheerleader for moving them forward. And part of that is reminding people in these situations, look, we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, we've made a lot of progress and we've still got some more to do, but, uh, you know, let's, uh, you know, gird ourselves, uh, re refresh ourselves and move forward. And just that kind of, uh, that kind of attitudinal refreshing. Uh, can bring new energy back into a conversation I've found. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What about apologies? Is that, a, is that a useful strategy to help move things forward in those situations? It can be. Um, and uh, I've certainly seen it uh, uh, implemented uh, in mediations. But I think with apologies, one needs to be very cautious Um uh, we all understand that when we talk about apology, there's a spectrum of apology. At one end of the spectrum, at the, uh, the, the slightest end of the spectrum, is, is kind of the attitude, uh, well, I'm sorry you feel that way about it, <laughs> you know, whatever <laughs> it may be. Um, at the other end of the spectrum is what I call a full Monty apology uh and well, that's that conjures up a strange visual yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> i know yeah i know and, and, and but it's it, when you think of it, it, it i think it's it's apt because it's an apology that starts off with someone saying i did this thing whatever it may have been i did this thing um i know this thing i did caused you harm or distress or upset or whatever it might be. Um, and I know that I am responsible for that. And I want you to know that I am deeply and truly sorry that I did this thing. Mm -hmm. And so in a mediation, uh, when that is the first item of business and it's a full Monty uh, uh, apology, uh, yeah, it, uh, it can often have very beneficial effects and move things forward in a very productive way. Uh, when you get something that doesn't go quite that far, which, you know, I've been in mediations where we've spent hours drafting the wording of the apology. Well, if you think about it, the fact that you've got to do that sort of takes away from the authenticity of it. Uh, and, yeah. and, and sees it as simply another element, another bargaining chip, if you will, another exchange of compensation uh, that's going to be part of the settlement package. And particularly if uh, that sort of comes up later in the piece and is put on the table as sort of an extra chip, if you will, uh, in my view, it is uh, not all that helpful. It's usually... Mm -hmm. Uh, seen right through and uh, understood not to be authentic. But there's no question, uh, apology does have its place and uh, it does come up frequently in, uh, uh, in the cases I mediate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I imagine sometimes that's, going back to interests, that may, may be really what someone is looking for in, uh, in the facilitated conversation. Yeah. Apology. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that is right. That's going to be a piece of it. Uh, it it's rarely only that, of course, but uh, the acknowledgement that is implicit in an apology, yeah, that can certainly go a long way. I mentioned, uh, you know, one of the types of cases I get involved in are medical malpractice cases. And uh, there uh, is a good example of cases where apologies uh, do go a long way. But the other thing I see, the other interest that I see there is uh, I wouldn't want somebody else to have to go through what I've been through. Mm -hmm. And what what is being done to improve the situation or to make it less likely that someone else would suffer the way that I've had to suffer. So it's another example of the kind of interest that comes up, uh, not really an apology, but something that is, um, you know, addressing a different interest, obviously. Just wondering if there's anything that uh, we haven't touched on that you think would be useful. One thing I did want to uh, focus on, um, because I've come to see the importance of it uh, in term, and this again is in the area of uh, you as a person going into a difficult conversation and how you think about it. Um, and uh, maybe to sort of get at what I'm talking about here, you know, ask you or your listeners to think about uh, the last time that you were really upset with someone, um, you know, we, we all have it in our lives where we, we have situations uh, that we're, we're really upset with people. Uh, I think in my case, uh, I remember it was, it was a few years ago now, but uh, we were having some renovation work done in our home and um, the uh, contractor had agreed that he was going to do it while we were away on uh, our spring vacation. And it just worked out perfectly. It was all going to be done. No fuss, no muss. And of course, we get back from the spring <laughs> vacation and he's not even half done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, so uh, put yourself in that kind of a situation. Uh, what are the emotions that you feel? Uh, and I'm linking this to the emotions that you might be feeling as you're going into or preparing for a difficult conversation. I know for me in that uh, circumstance, it was uh, obviously anger. Uh, I was angry at the situation. Uh, but as I thought about it more, there was also some sadness there because I sort of had this feeling, uh, you know, I'd, I'd let the rest of the family down because I was the one sort of <laughs> managing this contract. And I felt that, uh, you know, there, there was a certain element of sadness in my emotional response to it, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, as, as time has gone on, I've thought about it and talked to others about it. It's, it's uh, caused me to sort of go deeper in that kind of a situation. Why did I feel that? Why did I feel the anger and sadness? Um, and again, for me in those circumstances, uh, boiling it down, well, they didn't respect me. That, mm -hmm. that contractor said he was going to have it done and he didn't get it done. And so that means he didn't respect me. He didn't care about me. And that can really trigger uh, these emotions. Mm -hmm. But when you think it through, you know, go even deeper. What kind of person uh, doesn't get respect? What kind of person, uh, you know, doesn't have themselves looked after? And I came to the conclusion, uh, and it, I, I say I came to the conclusion, but uh, the writings of uh, Gabor Mate, and I'll provide you with a link as well if you want to put that up. Uh, mm -hmm. I found really... Uh, instructive uh, in this kind of a situation. 
someone that uh, who doesn't get the respect, who doesn't get the care, someone who's not deserving, somebody mm. who's unworthy of care or respect. Um, and you think about that and you think about why was it that the contractor didn't get the work done? And you can immediately realize there, there's like dozens of reasons. Maybe he was ill himself, or maybe some of his workers were sick, or he couldn't get the materials or whatever. But I went, I immediately went to the anger and the upset um, mm -hmm. without thinking through what some of these other uh, options might be that had nothing to do with him disrespecting me or right. not caring about me. Uh, but the point is that when we're in those circumstances in the moment, I dare say most people will go immediately to that choice, that, that very negative choice. Mm -hmm. We choose the worst one. It just, and I say we choose, I mean, it comes automatically. It's just the, the <laughs> way we are. But if you take it one step further in this whole concept of like unworthy, and so I, I feel like I'm being treated like I'm unworthy, uh, again, I'm no psychologist, but this then ties into uh, times in our life, uh, sometimes times in our very early life, where we have experienced this sense of not being worthy or not being cared for uh, in, in the way that we had hoped we would be. Um, and in fact, there's an element of trauma in this that mm -hmm. we uh, bring forward with us. Uh, so when I'm getting really upset uh, with my tradesmen and I'm finding it almost impossible to talk to them uh, about this, uh, what I've learned is that when that kind of thing bubbles up, uh, and I think it does for many people, um, it's not about something in the present so much. It's about something in the past. Yeah, and yeah. being reflective about that in terms of how we manage these difficult conversations, uh, uh, conflict situations, and so forth, understanding that a lot of this stuff is just coming up uh, from the past, it's bubbling up, and we don't know how to deal with it, we don't know how to, uh, uh, to uh, manage it, to recognize it lots of times. And so, you know, to me, this was something I wanted to say in the context of our conversation today, because, um, you know, in these circumstances, and I think, you know, we're, we're living in a much more uh, open time when it comes to mental health issues and uh, mm -hmm. counseling and those kinds of things. Uh, I can tell you those two uh, are important resources for mediators to develop a deeper, more integrated uh, understanding of where these emotions are coming from uh, that we experience when we're in these difficult conversations. And that's where the learning is. And that's where the, the very good news of this is. Uh, so I thought it was appropriate just when we're talking about difficult conversations to sort of get that on the radar screen. Is It's not all habits and strategies and tactics. They're important, no question. But some of this is pretty deep-rooted stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think uh, moving forward, trying to be better people and so forth, it... Uh, it behooves us to reflect on that and see what we can do to improve that as well. I really, really appreciate you bringing that up. And, you know, there are these emotions that um, we've experienced in the past that come up in the present and we really don't understand them and the, the power of their continuing the force um, is, is really quite remarkable. So I really appreciate you bringing that up.
just wonderful speaking with you. And I really, really enjoyed uh, hearing your approach to mediation and talking about different habits and all of the wonderful tips that you shared. So thanks so much, Rick. Shelly, thank you for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. And I really hope that uh, uh, there will be something of value here for your listeners, uh, that it will help them with their upcoming difficult conversations. Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. Thanks for joining me today on the Excel Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at exllegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L.com.